I'm not concerned with your liking me or disliking me. All I ask is that you respect me as a human being. Jackie Robinson, former Major League Baseball player. This is a special presentation of Colors, a dialogue on race in America. East 38th Street and Chicago Avenue, Minneapolis, Minnesota, May 25th, 2020. A man died and a movement was born. This is the Colors documentary series, part one, how we got here. What do you miss most about your daddy? Well, I ask about him all the time. And that's kind of it. Yeah. Well, when you ask about him, what are you asking about? Well, I was asking, how did my dad get hurt? That was Gianna Floyd on June 25th, 2021, 399 days after George Floyd died on a dirty street. Please, please, ah, I think we are People all across the country reacted. My name is Jesslyn. I'm a multiracial woman raised primarily by white people. I live in Oakland, California, and the killing of George Floyd was heartbreaking and also infuriating, not only because it's a gross abuse of power and violence again, but because our community members have been surviving and grieving and witnessing and calling out this injustice for literally hundreds of years. Don't act like you hadn't seen this before. Rodney King was nearly beaten to death 30 years ago and nothing happened. And there have been four murders since George Floyd. So I, I'm really, really sensitive. When it comes to this, we've been given a lot of crap. Former pro football player Rick Walker in Washington, D.C. My name is Hagar Shamali and I'm from Connecticut. I'm American Lebanese, and because of the experiences my parents had during the Civil War in Lebanon, they told me every day how lucky I was to be born in the United States. I love this country, which is why I'm so heartbroken at how endemic and horrific racism is here. I'm Chris Kaur, and I'm white. It's just interesting to me how this one occasion in Minnesota has become an international um episode I, I i just i still can't quite get over that it's incredible i don't i can't think of anything else that's ever been like that with the possibility of, of when we uh, ended apartheid in south africa i am carlos and i live in dc but i i'm originally from venezuela the past couple of weeks have really questioned my belief in police and law enforcement in this country i think when i look back I gave too much trust to the organizations and the uniform and that police enforcement, uh, police and law enforcement are not as trustworthy as I originally uh, imagined. 
My name is Mindy Peterson. I'm a white woman from the Midwest. I live in a Minneapolis suburb and the George Floyd killing hit very close to home for me. It's right here in my community and along with the graphic camera footage that was available, it really got my attention. Since then, I've been learning a lot about white privilege and have been asking myself, what can I do right now to be part of the solution to the problem of racism? Hi, I'm Thomas Warren. I'm a black man from Inglewood, California. And my first thought of seeing George Floyd die on that video was anger and that his life didn't matter enough to those four officers to want to spare it so he could see his day in court, which led to my second feeling of despair and just wanting to shake people and say that black folks don't want you to feel sorry for us. We just want some empathy and understanding that we want our lives to matter enough to be protected and I'm hoping we can get there one day. I'm Tiffany Arnold. I'm African-American, and I'm from the Midwest. I'm actually not surprised that what happened happened. Um, my father is a black police officer, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about what's happened lately, and it's not that there's a resurgence in violence against people of color. It's just that there's more cameras. Most people were off work that day, including Julia Ziegler, a white female, originally from Pennsylvania, now living in Washington, D.C. She's the director of news and programming at WTOP. Breaking news on WTOP. The next day, I, I got back to work and the video of George Floyd had surfaced, right? And we were talking about it on the air um, but like most days at WTOP, it was a pretty busy day for me. Um, and so I didn't get a chance to watch the full video um, while I was at work that day. And I went home that night and um, pushed play and watched all eight minutes and 46 seconds. And like a lot of people who watched that video, I was physically ill. I cried. I wanted to, you know, jump through my phone and do something. It was that guttural call for help. Um, and I and and you know and and that sick feeling in your stomach when there's no one on the other end. To do anything about it. Statements of condemnation from people at almost every station of American life, from the average everyday American, of all conceivable racial backgrounds, to the rich and powerful, began to pour out of locations across the country. People flooded into the streets. This began a loud, painful, long cry for justice that triggered protests from coast to coast. Some of them lasted months. The arrest and charging 
of Derek Chauvin, who knelt on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes, and other police officers involved in his death, instead of bringing guaranteed relief, a lot of people were worried that the U.S. justice system would fail again. Law enforcement and politicians across the country were conflicted about what to do and struggled with their own thoughts, like Matt Fogel, the district attorney in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. You wrote a letter, um, and a piece of that letter um, has stuck in a lot of people's minds, and it's certainly something I, I won't forget. And in that piece, you, you, you wrote the words, Black Lives Matter, period, full stop. I confess when I first heard the phrase, my immediate reaction was that all lives matter. I was wrong and part of the problem. So why did you write that? It's been quite a year uh, since I did write that. And uh, I've had lots of experiences uh, with respect to my public statement. I I wrote it because I felt compelled. Um, I wanted to show support. I wanted to provide uh, some clarity to the community. And I wanted to promote um, unity um, in the community. And so since I uh, issued that public statement, um, I've had lots of different reactions to it. And moving forward, I subsequently issued um, other public statements. And I'll continue to do so with the spirit of being relentless, but yet certainly not obnoxious. But this conversation just cannot go away. Police across the country struggled to hold back their anger, some because they felt the pressure of an unrelenting spotlight, like Patrick Skinner, a police officer in Savannah, Georgia. I would be called terrible things. That's great. Um, and then when there was out, you know, police abuse or police crime, um, people would you know, associate me with that. And I get that. I, I do get that. Um, I just wouldn't take it personally because I thought that was the way I could just keep doing my job and never get defensive. And then after the Chauvin verdict, um, I mean, the whole murder, I mean, it's on video and you're watching it and there's cops standing there. And, and then there's this reflexive circle of the wagons, you know, he, he may have done something wrong. Uh, then I realized, no, I need to take this personally. And, and it wasn't like I just opened my eyes. Some people have said, oh, you're just now figuring it out. Well, no, no, I'm not. But I'm just trying to figure out a way to do my job. And uh, so I decided that we have to take this personally. Every cop has to be, I mean, outraged. And you have to be personally outraged. And that's the only way the profession can change. That may be true, but police are people too, and they have feelings. Some of them felt betrayed by Derek Chauvin and even their own communities. This came up on episode 54 of The Colors Podcast during a conversation with Montgomery County, Maryland, president of the county council, Tom Hucker. We had a tragedy in my own neighborhood. And, you know, the police department which I think is one of the best in the country, um, responded. And they did some amazing work along with neighborhood action teams and people from the county and folks from your office and other places that did some great work there to get with that situation under control. On one day, I approached an officer just to see how it was going with him and how he was doing. 
And I was stunned when the officer said essentially to me, how dare you? And he was referring, as we learned through the conversation that I was having with him after he made that comment, to the fact that police across the country had been lumped into one big category and were been they, they'd been, according to him, beat up on because of what happened with these officers in Minneapolis. And he said, you, as a part of the press, are responsible to, for this. And I thought about it, and, you know, he wasn't wrong because on many occasions we in the press didn't do what we should have done effectively, separating out and not lumping all police together. We were just rushing to report this story, and that was wrong. And a lot of very well-intentioned, hard-working police officers were essentially uh, lumped into this category, and it really took a big toll on their morale. And he also said to me, politicians were complicit in that action too. And I'm wondering what your concern is or what your view is regarding that concern. No, that's that's uh, very well put. And it's, it's a very difficult issue. On the one hand, um, I think what, what you said at the beginning is right. We have, in generally in Montgomery County, it's true in many jurisdictions, um, a, a good police force um, by many metrics. They are, um, they're not paid, I think, as well as they should be compared to some of our surrounding jurisdictions. But in general, compared to an awful lot around the country, they're paid better, they're trained better, um, and uh, they have access to um, better equipment and, and uh, they, they are under the, they're supposed to be working under the leadership of what's you know considered a progressive county executive and council. On the other hand, that doesn't mean they, there is not a need for reform. And as the ingredients of reform are introduced into communities across the country, the wheels of justice slowly grind on. Finally, the day of the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial came, April 20th, 2021. And Chris Kaur, my co-host on this podcast, had a reaction that seemed to have been almost universal around the country. In this case, it was just my wife and me in our house, but I know my neighbors were watching and I got several texts telling me, hey, be sure you watch because the verdict is coming soon. And I, you know, uh, I'll, I'll confess, my wife and I both got teary. Uh, And I don't know why, because I suspected that he was going to be found guilty on all the charges. But you never know. I also thought O.J. Simpson was going to be found guilty. So, um, you know, I've been wrong in the past. Julia Ziegler again. You know, the verdict was a moment. It really meant something. I was in the newsroom that day and everyone working just stopped and was silent as the jury filed into the courtroom and the verdicts were read. And that that does not happen a lot in newsrooms, right? Usually they're loud. People are moving about, especially during breaking news. But this was the complete opposite. Everyone wanted to hear what was going to happen. And just after 4 o'clock p.m. Central Time, the verdict came down and was read by Judge Peter Cahill in Hennepin County Court in Minneapolis. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, 
unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Jury four-person, 019. As soon as that first count came down guilty, we, we knew the rest would be two. And so, of course, the newsroom quickly kicked into gear and did what the newsroom does um, in terms of getting out the news. But as soon as that initial news push happened, I looked around the room and everyone was on their cell phones texting someone, you know, because it, again, it meant something. The question was not what it meant, but how much did it mean? You know, this story isn't over. The three other officers who were there that day, the day that George Floyd was murdered, they haven't gone to trial yet. And those will be big moments, too. They'll say something about this country, how far we've come or not come, and what we will stand for and what we won't. You know, I heard someone say recently that over the past year, there's been this collective energy in America to talk about racial justice and injustice, right? My question is, will it continue? No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. That question is yet to be answered. What has continued is the struggle between police in certain communities around the country and its citizens. On the very same day, of the verdict in Derek Chauvin's murder trial, a teenage girl was shot and killed by police in Columbus, Ohio. Micaiah Bryant, age 16, was the victim. The response, even though many communities around the country were on edge, did not explode in the same way that it did on Memorial Day of 2020. Part of the reason may have been the byproducts of the Black Lives Matter movement. One of them was the solidarity demonstrated across the country and coming from sometimes unlikely places. It made absolute sense for Motor Trend to step in here. Mark Recton is editor of Motor Trend magazine, and they didn't exactly step in at that moment. They had done it months before when they released an edition called Driving Wild Black, focusing on the historic problems African-Americans have had with police and driving, dating back decades. Motor Trend is more than just about cars. It's about car culture. And yes, we get readers who say, you know, stay out of politics, stick to cars. This is not politics. This is a human rights issue. And if people who read our publication are not able to enjoy the same joys of driving for the simple matter of the color of their skin. Um, to me, that's something that must be brought to people's attention. And feedback we got, you know, obviously we live in a very polarized uh, 
society right now. There were plenty of people who did say stick to cars, stay out of politics. There was, you know, accusations of social justice posturing, um, whataboutism, um, you know, accusing us being anti-cop, which is patently untrue. We, we work with both LAPD and El Segundo PD to help identify cars used in, in felonies, um, as well as a lot of get over it. This happened 50 years ago, not really understanding that this is still happening today. Um, on the flip side, though, we did get a lot of letters of support. But not all of the support was fully understood, like the group of white female mothers that showed up in Portland. Washington Post columnist Robin Gavon had a bit of difficulty with what was happening. I realized that there was something about it that I found troubling. She wrote a column titled, The Black Lives Matter Movement Hits a Different kind of wall. You said the wall of moms lined the tumultuous streets of Portland, Oregon, placing their bodies clad in bright yellow shirts between fellow protesters and law enforcement. The women stood arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, wearing armor reflective of their privileged lives, scuba masks, shiny bike helmets, and white skin. The allies had arrived. Writing it was in some ways just an opportunity to explore why it made me uncomfortable. And I think often we try to see things in terms of good and bad. And I realized as I was writing it that, um, you know, things, particularly when it comes to race, are, are so much more complicated and that it's possible to feel both good and bad about uh, what was happening uh, simultaneously. And so I felt that here were these, these women who um, had gone out into the streets to join protesters. Um, these white, mostly white women who identified themselves as mothers and who were bringing all of sort of the cultural um, signals that come along with motherhood and the idea of uh, the unconditional love and the fierce protectiveness but at the same time, I was troubled by the fact that their arrival had, uh, they were set apart and they weren't described as protesters. They were described as having put themselves between officers and protesters as if they were something else. And I was distressed that there seemed to be such a need uh, for these white women to, to speak up in order for what the protesters were saying to be really acutely heard. Put yourself in this situation. You're trying to convince some people of something. And you've tried six ways to Sunday using a variety of language and tools to show them what your point is. They don't get it. Someone in the group speaks up and says, oh, I get it. They use some slightly different language. They use some different tools. And everybody in the group says, oh, now I get it. That's what Robin Gavon is talking about. That can be frustrating. That is something that marginalized people, particularly people of color, 
have complained about in this country for centuries. Complaining about it will continue, even though there are those that say we should stop it, like Dr. Shelby Steele, a noted scholar at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. I won't say there's absolutely no racism. There is, there is, and, there, there, and some of it's very subtle. Um, but today, black Americans are faced with, with something we've never been faced with before. That is not only the, the fr freedom that we never had, but the goodwill of the American people. The American people want us to do well, to overcome all of the problems of underdevelopment that four centuries of oppression left us with. Mm -hmm. The country is rooting for us. They're not discriminating against us. They're not trying to keep us down. Dr. So this is a new variable that we s somehow refuse to take into account as we think about race today. But it's the overwhelming variable. Okay. Freedom. Dr. Steele. And I think a like to... good bit of the, the problem we have with, with freedom is that it's frightening. It scares you. Human beings are it's not easy to be free. A lot of things that you could take for granted before you can't, once you are free, you become responsible for them. Dr. Steele. And um, in order to hide from that responsibility or to avoid it, which also is very natural and human, um, we say racism is still here. We, we even lavishly invent, um, reinvent racism. Now it's systemic racism. It's, you know. Uh, so Dr. Steele, I'm sorry to interrupt, sir, but I I see some of this a little differently, and I'm wondering if you'll indulge me to throw a couple of things at you. This idea that racism is, is has improved to some people, they just don't see that. What do you say to those who say to you, well, my experience is different? And what do you say to those people who see what has taken place in the last few years with the, with the resurgence of organizations that have outwardly said they do believe in the separation or the, the superiority of one race over another? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is calm down. Because <laughs> um, I, I I understand your questions and I want to I want to um, treat them carefully. Um, but you're you're talking to somebody who grew up when segregation was really real. Uh, you know that's not the we, we, we didn't we we could never have been that sensitive. If we would, we wouldn't have survived. There's going to be racism. There's going to be ugliness in this in the human condition forevermore. It's never going to be perfect. I mean, it is amazing. And for to sit and and look under leaves to try to find some faint hint of racism is well. I'm going to be honest with you. You are people who do that are betraying their race. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, because everyone has their own set of experiences and circumstances. And quite often, as has been stated in this podcast, sometimes we look at things as good and bad, but sometimes things actually reside somewhere in the middle, as is the case of Katie Musselman. I am a Korean adoptee who was raised and currently live in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia. I grew up in a white family in a very white community. I have two sisters, but I was the only one who was adopted. While I didn't have many issues with this growing up, recently I allowed myself to recognize that both of my sisters married racist men. This is sad and disorienting and has led me to really question what my sisters thought of me and the true nature of our relationships. It bewilders me as to how two women 
raised with a sister of a different ethnicity, could marry spouses who harbor hate for other races, and it dredges up all sorts of doubts for me about family relationships. Additionally, my husband and I have three children, two biological and one adopted son who is black. This just heightens the feelings and tension. Of course, we do not want to expose them to racism, especially from their family. This family dynamic has pushed my husband and I to discuss our priorities and values in a way that hits closer to home than I ever could have imagined. Katie mentioned her inability to imagine the scenario she and her family find themselves in now, present day. But looking back at everything that's transpired since George Floyd's death, it's clear America's going to need to cultivate its collective imagination to see how best to pull all of its finest attributes together to heal the wounds of the past and to chart a course for the future. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The moment to preach the cousins that divides us has come. The time to build is upon us. Nelson Mandela, May 10th, 1994, from his inauguration speech in South Africa. A key step in America's healing after George Floyd's death was June 25th, 2021, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Hennepin County Court, Judge Paul Cahill. I'm not going to attempt to be profound or clever because it's not the appropriate time. I'm not basing my sentence also on public opinion. I'm not basing it on any attempt to send any messages. A trial court judge, the job of a trial court judge is to apply the law to specific facts and to deal with individual cases. And so, Mr. Chauvin, as to count one, based on the verdict of the jury, finding you guilty of unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony under Minnesota Statute 609.19 Subdivision 2, Paren 1, it is is the judgment of the court that you now stand convicted of that offense. Pursuant to Minnesota Statute uh, Section 60904, counts 2 and 3 will remain unadjudicated as they are lesser offenses of count 1. As sentence for count 1, the court commits you to the custody of the Commissioner of Corrections for a period of 270 months. That's 270. That is a 10-year addition to the presumptive sentence of 150 months. This is based on your uh, abuse of a position of trust and authority and also the particular cruelty shown to George Floyd. You are granted credit for 199 days already served. Pay the mandatory surcharge of $78 to be paid from prison wages. You are prohibited from possessing firearms, ammunition, or explosives for the remainder of your life. Provide a DNA sample as required by law. Register as a predatory offender as required by law. And you will receive a copy of the order and also the attached memorandum explaining the court's analysis. Anything further from the state? If this needs to be said, we just ask that it be executed forthwith. Defendant is remanded to the custody of the sheriff to be transported uh, back to the DOC or whichever custody is currently holding him. Anything for the defense? No, you're All right. Thank you. We are adjourned. 22 and one half years in prison for Derek Chauvin. 15 for good behavior. His sentence will be appealed and it could change his future. But for this little girl, nothing will change her reality. Do you wish that he was still here with us? Yeah, but he is. Through his spirit, 
Yes. Yes. And when you see your daddy again one day, what do you want to do when you see him? I want to play with him. What kind of games do you want to play with him? Um, I want to um, play with him, have fun, go on a plane ride, go, um, and that's it. Yeah. Would you... we, used to, we used to have dinner meals every single night before we went to bed. My, uh, my daddy always used to help me brush my teeth. Aww. Do you miss him helping brush your teeth? Yes. How do you hope that the world remembers him? Well, they help him because um, those mean people did something to him. Yeah. If you could say anything to your daddy right now, what would it be? It would be, I miss you and I love you. You've been listening to a special presentation of Colors, a dialogue on race in America. The Colors Documentary Series, Part 1, How We Got Here. If you have questions or comments or suggestions, send us an email at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Special thanks to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Joel Oxley, the WTOP social media team, and for the music, Bobby Richards, Unicorn Heads, The Winans, DJ Freedom, and most of all, thanks to you, our listeners in the U.S. and 15 other countries, Germany, Egypt, France, Italy, the U.K., Japan, Mexico, Bangladesh, Belgium, India, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Switzerland, Yemen, and Canada. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, just keep talking to each other. And most importantly, keep listening to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.